I, uh, today, will be talking about the role of interventions, which I think fits in very nicely uh, with some of the previous work that we've heard so far, and uh, resilience in mental health. Now, my background isn't actually in clinical psychology at all. I'm a developmental psychologist, but I think some of the aspects that I'm interested in can be very easily related uh, to um, aspects of mental health. So um, here's an outline of what I'll be presenting over the next uh, 25 to 30 minutes. Um, and my sort of focus in terms of investigation is primarily on um, executive functions. So I'll start by making a link between executive functions and their role in mental health, um, and in potentially providing a very good factor um, of resilience. Um, this will um, be presented the um, introduction, and then I'll start talking about some um, possibilities for concrete interventions of executive functions um, by targeting two sort of candidate mechanisms, one being inhibitory control, an aspect of executive function that I've um, dedicated a lot of time studying, and also stressor controllability, which um, relates very nicely to some of the work that Peter um, presented earlier this morning, and which I'm uh, becoming increasingly um, and I'll close by discussing some of the uh, you know, larger ramifications of doing interventions in the first place. So um, aspects that um, Essie alluded to, you know, what works for whom and why and how can we get a handle on this extremely complicated issue. Um, how do interventions transfer in the first place? They tend to take place in a relatively isolated, um, a not bleak, but sort of stripped down environment of the lab. How does that transfer into real life? And what are the potential hidden costs of staging an intervention, um, particularly in mental health? So I'll be discussing some of these ramifications. Um, so stress and mental health, we've heard all about this. Uh, this is just a repeat or a reiteration that chronic stress um, is known to be one of the most potent precursors to um, adverse mental health. And these can be economic stressors such as low SES or poverty, but also social stressors such as neglect um, and now we also know that there are strong genetic predispositions which can create increased vulnerabilities to developing mental health disorders. Um, and the question is, what can we do to try and intervene at any particular point in time there? And as a developmental psychologist, I'm particularly interested in these developmental trajectories and how the developing system responds to particular stressors, but also to particular aspects of enrichment and buffering some of these adverse effects that, um, that these stresses might potentially have. So there's a lot of literature um, in terms of buffering functions, uh, in, yeah, buffering functions of executive functions and mental health. So executive functions broadly defined as comprising working memory, inhibitory control, or task switching have been shown to be very crucial um, in terms of coping with the demands that are made by stressful life events. Um, and for instance, depression and anxiety um, have been shown to be characterized by, for instance, poor inhibitory control, especially when processing emotional information. Now, um, Mark Johnson very cogently argues that good executive functions are really critical um, in terms of compensating atypical functioning which might arise from the interaction of genetics and environmental um, factors. And uh, there's some relatively good data uh, showing that protracted prefrontal cortex development, which is sort of the, um, uh, the, the neural analog of executive function, 
in playing a really important role in adaptively organizing other cortical networks in terms of responding to some of these adverse events that might be happening. In addition to the sort of actual cogs and the wheels of executive functions, I'm also interested in more metacognitive strategies, such as the experience of being in control and how that might play um, a, particularly on, um, a particular role in, in buffering um, or leading to depression if you don't feel in, in control. And there's some very, very interesting rodent work uh, that's come out of this. So, Essie talked a little bit about this um, yesterday. Um, inhibitory control has been shown to be a really important predictor for all sorts of future um, uh, life outcomes. So, for instance, it's, it's a really strong predictor for academic achievement, for poverty, for likelihood of substance abuse, and also for criminality. In turn, uh, the ability or the, the feeling of being in control of things that happen to you in your own life has been shown to be a really important predictor of um, resilience, especially in the face of adverse life events. Now, both these aspects of control, so inhibitory control and the experience of being in control, rely on um, late developing prefrontal cortical brain regions, um, which are known to be particularly plastic. So um, there's this notion that um, the longer a brain region takes to develop, the more amenable it might be to the effects of particular um, interventions, which on the one hand suggest vulnerabilities, but also opportunities. And it's exactly these opportunities that we, um, or I in my work, try to um, exploit. Now, there are some other additional bonuses of using interventions in the first place to study the developing system. On the one hand, you can get, I think, a very good handle of mirroring aspects of the environment by using an intervention, but in a very controlled uh, laboratory setting. On the other, whatever you try to intervene on can establish a really concrete mechanistic role in terms of leading to particular outcomes. And now more related to mental health, um, by using interventions, you know, we might see some improvements and also associated transfer to um, other functions. And I'll try and build on, uh, on the benefits of using interventions as, um, as an experimental tool. So, Essentially, the way that I try to look at interventions is that they can um, provide us with an assay of um, sense material. So we can see interventions as flip sides of deprivations. And deprivations, you know, this is obviously something that we can't recapitulate in the lab for very, very obvious ethical reasons. So, but what we can potentially do is flip this around and try to enrich a particular thing um, uh, in a laboratory setting uh, and see how this... Uh, plays out in terms of effects on the developing system. So the rationale here, much like in deprivation, is that at a crucial moment in time, the organism receives an enriched input to which it is especially sensitive, which in turn should have um, a positive impact on a particular outcome variable. And the way that we would try and operationalize this is through a training or an enrichment of a specific social, affective, or cognitive function. I'm about to give two examples of how this could potentially be done. Now, the reason why we would like to do these types of interventions, especially when we're interested in mental health outcomes, um, and to try and do this in childhood, is because there's very, very compelling evidence now, and this has also been broached in the previous talks, that adolescence is a really crucial, critical period of time when um, mental health disorders appear to emerge. 
So this is across a range of different um, disorders. And adolescence really seems to be the period of time when mental health uh, disorders become apparent, at least. Um, in terms of other work, this is a slightly confusing graph, but you know, I, I, th I thought I'd try and slip that in there anyway. Um, this is, um, what this uh, shows is a meta-analysis of, um, of uh, the extent to which training executive functions transfers onto other outcomes and far outcomes. So not just improving in the particular task that is being trained, but also in other domains which are somehow related to this particular task. And what this graph shows is that the earlier you start training executive functions, the wider the, um, the wider the effect is on other associated outcomes. So the earlier you do these interventions, the, 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 sort of, um, the larger the, um, the transfer is to other domains. And this is based in a theory of brain development known as interactive specialization, which argues that early in life, um, one part of the brain is going to support a wider set of functions than later in life. So if you try and train and impinge on this particular part of the brain, using um, a certain intervention, it's going to have a wider set of transfer effects than later in life. So this suggests that early to middle childhood might be a really important point in time, both in terms of preventing particular effects, but also in terms of its amenability um, for uh, poor interventions and training. So um, what I'll do now is I'll present some really early preliminary work on uh, training executive functions, namely inhibitor control, uh, and its possibility of transferring to social behavior. So some of my previous work has shown that um, you know, young children have a hard time giving up valuable resources, and the better they are at inhibitory control, the more likely they are to give up the valuable resources and share this with somebody else. So what I was interested in, the first thing that I'll present is if we can train inhibitory control and this inhibitory control training is going to have a beneficial outcome in terms of social behavior. And the second, um, uh, the second set of studies which I'll be talking about, not my own work, but somebody else's, Kate Hartley's in fact, is on the experience of controllability and how that might transfer to the acquisition of, um, uh, of fearful stimuli and especially the unlearning or the extinction of fear. So um, this first study was um, with 50 children aged six to nine years. That was the age range that I'd previously tested in showing these associations between inhibitory control and social behavior. And um, the way that I train inhibitory control is relatively simple and relatively impoverished. It's just a motor control task, essentially. Um, so it's a stop signal reaction time task, and what participants see is a visual stimulus to which they have to typically respond. And on some trials, they hear a concomitantly presented auditory stimulus. And they're told that each time you see the visual stimulus, press this button. But each time you also hear the auditory stimulus, try and inhibit this um, motor response. And what happens is that you can shift the interval between the visual and the auditory stimulus. And it's very easy to inhibit when the, the gap between the auditory and the visual stimulus is um, narrow. And it becomes harder when the gap widens which means that on every single individual trial, you can use the um, performance of the preceding trial, if they inhibited correctly or not, as a gauge if you should make the training harder or easier. So this is actually very elegant and very effective in making it adaptive um, to the individual ability uh, of the child. 
So we have two groups of children, one engaging in this inhibitory control training and the other um, engaging in an active sham training where they merely have to respond to the visual stimulus. They'll pay attention to the auditory one but not heed it in terms of the particular task demand. And um, we tested their inhibitory control ability both before and after the training and we also looked at their willingness to give up valuable resources in um, various contexts. And the training that we used wasn't actually all that long, it's so 50 minutes, they did it four times a week and uh, the whole training duration was two weeks in total, so not all that much actually. Um, so here's this measure of um, motor control and in dark red you see the groups that trained control and in uh, pink you see the groups that merely had to react to the sham group and this is pre and post training and what you see is um, a significant decrease in the stop signal reaction time. So it, it's essentially an, an, an improved ability to deploy inhibitory control when you actually need to have to. So that's very nice, you know, up the, up the, the task that we thought was going to train did actually end up training motor control, so that was good. Um, now, did it have any transfer effect on sharing and uh, reciprocity? And this was uh, a lot more uncertain, and I'll discuss this in a moment under what circumstances we can expect a transfer of a particular um, intervention, but in actual fact it turned out that it did. So the children that had engaged in the inhibitory control training were subsequently more willing to give up valuable resources compared to the ones that merely engaged in uh, the sham training, and they were also more uh, less willing to um, accept unfair offers. Um, and there's a whole theory in terms of reciprocity and its uh, relationship to inhibitory control. So it shows that this relatively um, modest and simple way of training inhibitory control has some really significant uh, transfer effects onto, um, I would say, relatively unrelated domains, even though, of course, we had a hypothesis and we did show some relationships, but you wouldn't automatically or intuitively assume that there is such a relationship, but yet it seems to transfer very nicely. Now, sort of trying to get at a more mechanistic understanding of what exactly could be trained, there's a very nice study that was performed in um, adults by Elliot Berkman, who um, did a very similar type of training um, with adults. And what he shows that um, prior to the training, most um, participants have a so-called reactive way of engaging inhibitory control. And reactive um, inhibitory control means that, you know, you know that you're not meant to be responding to a particular stimulus, you're kind of not thinking about it, and as soon as the stimulus comes up, you go, okay, I'm not gonna react. So that's reacting to the immediate demand of needing to deploy um, control, whereas proactive control means that you've sort of uploaded task demands well in advance, you're ready for that um, stop signal to, um, uh, to, to appear, and um, you're, you know, you're in the best possible position to um, not respond at that particular point in time. And what Elliot Berkman showed is that as a function of this training, it was more extensive than in my study, he trained um, his subjects to go from a reactive control um, uh, mode to a proactive control mode. So that was essentially um, what he trained. And this is really nicely evidenced in uh, the neural pattern, whereby you have a cue period and a stop period, and it was particularly in response to the period, so knowing that there could be a stop signal coming up, that the group that trained inhibitory control suddenly showed much more activation in the right inferior frontal gyrus. So 
Uh, this is important to bear in mind also when you think about the ramifications of doing an intervention. You know, what are the potential costs and benefits of trying to impede um, or improve um, inhibitory control? And I'll discuss that a little bit in terms of the developmental profile. So just some of the next steps of where I want to go with this. Um, I've recently obtained some funding uh, where, um, which allows me to train um, inhibitory control in 300 children. Um, and I'll um, sort of try and get some extensive testing on their executive functions and academic achievement, um, their ability to be patient and also to share, um, and you know, get a comprehensive overview of their current state of brain development. Then there'll be an eight week of either inhibitor control training or active sham training, and then two um, post-training time points. One is immediately after training, and the other one is a year after training. And just to get it to extend, so what kind of a training might work well for which individual? What we'll try and do is see if we can get at individual different markers prior to the onset of training in terms of predicting some of the training outcomes. So there's various hypotheses, both in terms of the state of a brain relative to, um, uh, to your age group um, uh, and how this might relate to how receptive you could be to, um, uh, to a particular type of training. Um, so th these individual difference measures um, um, at the first time point are going to be really helpful in understanding who responds best to what kind of a training. And we can do the same in terms of seeing how long-lasting these potential effects are. Um, and you know, based on this idea of interactive specialization, uh, I'm most interested in the extent uh, of training and the possibility of transfer effects and how this might change in terms of age. So, what I would currently predict is that the size of the transfer would be largest in the youngest group of participants and would increase with age as a function of this increased specialization that we see in, um, and particularly in prefrontal brain regions. Now, the second type of intervention that I want to talk about is on experienced controllability. And this is sort of, you know, sort of the more metacognitive aspect of um, executive function. And um, the theory and this is based already in, uh, in the very early work of infants, uh, which shows that infants are extremely attuned to detecting self-related um, contingencies in the environment. And um, Gergay and Watson have uh, constructed, a, I find, a really compelling theory known as social biofeedback theory uh, that uh, sort of posits this mechanism as a really important facet in terms of learning about your own emotions. Um, and more importantly, it's what provides you with a sense of agency. And uh, there's you know, a lot of data um, suggesting that the subjectively experienced deficiency is a really strong determinant in terms of how we perceive and process threats. So this idea that I'm a person that is in control of my own life is a really strong um, uh, predictor of how you subsequently deal with so it's been shown to um, relate to how well you bounce back also from stressful life events. And believing yourself not to be in control of your own life has been shown to be a hallmark of affective disorders such as depression and also anxiety and learned helplessness, which is exactly what um, Peter was talking about earlier um, today. Now, what I find particularly interesting um, is this experience can be influenced and what its potential consequences could be. 
So I just want to briefly introduce you to um, a paradigm on stress of controllability that was run by um, Kay Haki, but it's um, just a reiteration of what Peter mentioned. So they invited 102 um, participants and they divided them into three groups of either um, a so-called escapable stressor or a yoked group that couldn't escape from the stressor and a group that experienced essentially no stress and the stress was created by administering pain, which is arguably very stressful. Um, and participants, you know, they had to reach a goal state and they could learn that reaching the goal state led to um, a reduction of the stressor um, and that was only the case in the escapable um, shock group. The inescapable shock group had no opportunity of learning about this particular feature. So essentially what they learned is that whatever I do, it doesn't have any outcome, it doesn't have any bearing on the situation and the amount of stress that I've been receiving. But more importantly, that the, um, the escapable shock group, they did learn to be in control. And I think this is something that wasn't mentioned um, earlier, is that you do actually see some very nice differential effects that the group that learned uh, to have control over, um, over a shock um, ended up sh to be more resilient, even than healthy controls. So um, participants underwent this particular procedure and afterwards uh, there was a fear learning and an extinction um, paradigm which was also done with um, painful stimuli. So here's um, the data of the three groups. Um, in white, you have the groups that um, learn control. In the gray, you have the normal control group. And in the dark gray, you have the groups that um, couldn't escape from it. They acquired <coughs> the subsequent fear very normally. But what was interesting is that in terms of extinction and also in terms of extinction retrieval, the group that had previously learned to control um, the, their exposure to stress ended up showing much better extinction and extinction um, retrieval, um, even compared to the normal controls. And I find this fascinating because this opens up um, a possibility for, um, for intervention. It's not just that learning that you're not in control um, makes you helpless, but learning that you, you're in control, that you could be in control, makes you even more resilient to um, subsequent um, stressful events. Um, so here she showed some more um, correlations with an internal control index interesting um, what they so how it's couched is also very much in terms of the Rosen's work that's been going on so many of these um, concepts do come from the um, rodent uh, literature and these um, findings have shown that the, these buffering effects of learning to be in control of a, um, of a stressor have um, a really long lasting effect and particularly so apparently for developmental um, and what's nice in this is that all the mice are genetically identical, so um, that, that you know, some of these particular confounding variables are kind of ruled out, particularly in the rodent studies. So here the question that I'm asking myself um, is if this could be used as a potential intervention in terms of buffering um, effects of future um, adversity. Uh, and some of the sort of related questions there is um, if this is something to do with um, being in control of a stressor or being in control of life events per se, but also very much how this might translate across different contexts. And I think there, um, you know, this is something that one can very much argue about if um, this kind of an environment constitutes uh, a reliable indicator of how much in control you are actually of your life. So going from these two examples of how um, interventions could potentially be used, um, especially in the context of mental health, I want to touch on um, a few 
ramifications or, um, or aspects which I find particularly important to consider. The first one being what works for whom um, and why. And this relates very much to um, the data and the, the concepts that Effie touched upon in her first lecture. So how do we translate the multi-level data to a concrete intervention? I don't have an answer to that. Uh, and I'll come to that also at the end. You know, what, you know, what exactly do we want to do with all this multi-level data? Um, but, you know, on the one hand, uh, we know that there might be latent vulnerability factors, but there's also quite a lot of literature suggesting that there might be something like latent susceptibility factors or differential susceptibility factors, which predispose some individuals, not only um, in terms of vulnerabilities, but also opportunities. Um, and this might be particularly important. Um, but I think also more just to summarize, I think what Effie was trying to get at is we really do need to understand the underlying causal mechanisms of, um, of uh, particular mental health disorders in terms of trying to understand what types of interventions we might be able to use. And here I think, again, interventions can be extremely useful in terms of trying to understand some mechanisms. So on the one hand, you know, we can do all the epidemiological sampling um, of life events and how this interacts with particular genetic predispositions and shapes the developing brain with particular psychological and behavioral outcomes. But we can also try and mimic some of these positive life events here in the lab to try and see what kind of um, similar mechanisms we might be getting at. And last but not least, and I do actually think this is very, very important, um, uh, at least when we're talking about um, you know, relatively basic mechanisms such as fear learning or fear extinction. Uh, rodent models do, and I think the, the, the talk by Charlotte Elements is really being on the rodent models and being able to extrapolate some of these data um, uh, from rodent models onto humans uh, really do offer, um, I think, um, a lot of um, possibility in reducing the problem space, I think, and how we think about what works for whom and why. So, one really important question in uh, research on interventions is how can we ensure transfer? All of this happens in the lab. You know, you saw my inhibitory control task. It's ridiculously impoverished as a sort of lifetime stimulus. How can we actually ensure some kind of a transfer onto real-life outcomes? Now, there's a lot of literature on this because people have tried and tried and tried again to try and uh, um, yeah, improve particularly executive function. Um, so ecological validity and um, ecological validity over a variety of different contexts seems to be one of the features that trainings and interventions have to satisfy in order to ensure some type of transfer. Um, moreover, interventions need to be adaptive. They need to adapt to the individual ability. They need to be sufficiently novel. They need to be sufficiently complex and also diverse to really satisfy the criteria of transfer. Um, I think there's something unusual about, um, or, or the, or guys, the, the mental health poses a really unusual um, problem space there, and I'll touch on that in a moment, which is that uh, the both brain and behavior, and this I think came out really beautifully in, the, um, in Amy's talk, is that brain and behavior are adapted to a particular um, ecology, and I think this has to very much be um, taken into account when thinking about how some things transfer. Um, this takes me on to um, what the potential trade-off might be um, in wanting to improve um, executive functions. So what are the trade-offs um, by trying to impinge on the developing system? So on the one hand, 
we try to provide benefits from our point of view to an adapted system, to an adapted system to a particular ecology. So, you know, these children um, um, work very well in a particular context, and from our point of view, you know, that they've been labeled as having a particular problem. We try to um, enrich that in some particular way. Um, I think also um, a, a sort of problem is that we're trying to focus on the individual, but the context is obviously as much um, a part of the problem, but it's so much harder to change. So I think one of the reasons why we try to focus so much on the individual is pure pragmatics. This is the, obviously the cheaper thing we think we can change, much more so than the actual context. But I think this, uh, you know, we have to be quite careful when we think about this. Um, so I'll just talk about two cautionary tales here. Uh, one is on the benefits of pro and reactive control in children, and the other is on breaking free from uh, low socioeconomic status. Um, so it's been shown that between three and a half and eight years, children become increasingly proactive in the way that inhibitory control is um, deployed. And uh, as I mentioned before, proactive control implies a better preparedness but it's also more resource demanding. If I go into a situation, I constantly monitor my environment for those types of cues that I'm meant to be responding to. This takes up a lot of resources, um, which means that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly maintaining all of this information in my working memory. That also means that when resources are limited, uh, reactive control may in actual fact be a lot more adaptive. So it's been shown that when additionally taxing working memory, children were a lot worse at proactive control tasks. And also the more proactive controllers were even more impaired. So it suggests that you know, proactive control, it's, it's obviously where the developing system seems to be going, but it also comes with particular costs. And I think when doing these types of interventions, or at least I'm reflecting this in terms of my own uh, studies, they shouldn't just target one type of control over another, but also think about the metacognitive ability of when to deploy a particular um, inhibitory control strategy. The second cautionary tale, um, which is kind of harrowing actually, it's, it, it suggests that there are real costs to excessive self-control, particularly in contexts where, it's, um, where the context isn't favorable you to deploy too much um, self-control. So this is a study that was published last year in PNAS, um, following 292 youths aged 17 to 20 years from African-American communities, and they were tested five times. Um, they got measures of socioeconomic status, their self-control ability, substance abuse, depression, aggressive behavior, and internalizing problems. And at age 22, um, they also looked at DNA methylation profiles to measure epigenetic aging. And uh, what they found was that self-control um, led to only skin-deep resilience, effectively. So they were very good. The, the individuals that had better self-control had much better psychological outcomes. So you know, depression and aggressive behavior, internalizing problems were radically reduced, but they actually had much poorer physical outcomes. And it's the, this idea that um, by if, if you come from a low socioeconomic background, trying to excessively regulate yourself to get out of that particular situation and lead to very good psychological problems, it's, it's gonna take its toll. It's gonna take its toll essentially on, um, on, uh, on, on health parameters. 
So it's been shown that there's a greater cardiometabolic um, risk. So what you see here is um, um, individuals with low self-control, individuals with high self-control, and the more disadvantaged um, ones um, deploying high self-control also have the highest um, uh, indicator of epigenetic age acceleration. So I think it's really important, therefore, to try and understand what the unique challenges are that are faced by those with mental health problems in order to try and optimize, optimize some of these interventions. Um, the final uh, the aspect that I want to talk about, though, is um, at-risk populations, and I think this uh, also plays very nicely into what Eamon uh, just talked about. So, you know, I think we have quite a good understanding uh, um, about the extent to which genetic and environmental risk can be estimated for certain individuals. Uh, and this suggests that, um, um, that knowing about this offers a source of intervening at earlier time points before these problems become manifest. And there's some really, really nice, really nice studies by Mark Johnson where they used um, gaze contingent inhibitory control training in 11-month-old children, and they show some really incredible um, effects of improvements in inhibitory control. And I know from their current work that they're just trying to extend this to um, children that might be at risk for ADHD. So this, I think, offers a really nice viable um, uh, time point in terms of intervening at points before um, particular problems end up becoming manifest. So just, uh, you know, without being too bleak about all of this, but uh, I, I think that we've talked so much about these different levels um, of analysis, and I think it's, it's so important and so fascinating also to try and understand uh, you know, the factors involved in, in, in disease, but also in preventing disease. And my impression is that we have a very good, broad understanding of what the cascade of mechanisms are leading to specific mental health outcomes, but I somehow, from hearing all of, that, all of this, I fear for the complexity. I fear for the complexity also in trying to obtain the specificity to, to help an individual. Um, and I think this is not only because you know, within each measure or within, you know, each biological variable, I think that there are further interactions, let alone downstream interactions, but also because the instruments that we, you know, and I have a neuroimaging background, the instruments that we have are relatively coarse, I must say, and they're still, you know, being refined. There's also a lot of statistical error that we have to deal with, and I think, we, I guess this shouldn't deter us, but uh, I, th I think these are, these are yeah, on, on bleaker days, I guess, the thinking about this gets me down. But more, um, uh, on a more positive level, I guess, all this information sets a boundary, good boundary conditions, in terms of what we can and can't expect from uh, particular interventions. So on that lighthearted note, thank you very much. Thank you.